0: 2018's hurricane season thrust itself upon the history books, starting on Memorial Day weekend with subtropical storm Alberto, then Hurricane Florence scraping North Carolina with flooding rains in September, and finally Category 5 Hurricane Michael destroying homes and lives along the Florida Panhandle in October. With all of these storms, meteorologists and emergency managers had to constantly work together to refine their communication to keep everyone in the storm's path safe. Today, I have two of those people at the top of their game, Dr. Rick Nab, the previous National Hurricane Center director and current Weather Channel hurricane expert, and Rebecca Moulton, natural hazards planning and disaster response meteorologist for FEMA. Today, we'll be looking back at how we did in 2018 and what we can improve upon as we start the 2019 Atlantic hurricane season. Dr. Nav and Rebecca, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be back, Marshall. I
0: I, want to, you know, uh, these are two of my favorite colleagues in the business and two of the best in the business, too. So I'm always glad to talk to good people. I want to just start right with 2019, because as we're taping this, we're a few days from the national hurricane season. So I want to go to Dr. Nabb first. Dr. Nab. What are your initial thoughts on the hurricane season forecast? And then I want to come to Rebecca for your initial response on how we did last year as we think about the upcoming season. So first, what are your initial take on the?
2: Well, on the seasonal forecast, let's ignore it. Seriously. (laughs) There we go. Because last year it didn't do anybody any favors. And this year, I think there's so much uncertainty in it. Uh, there's nearly equal chances, if you listen to the seasonal forecasters, of having an above or below or near-average season. And as we saw last year, when it wasn't forecast to be above average,
0: so you're, how you're, bad you're it really, was. you're really in this camp that suggests that Okay, there may be some usefulness out there for these seasonal forecasts, but, I mean, as we often say, it only takes one storm. So with where we are with the 2019 season, there's no sort of signal, as as I can tell. There's no
2: clear signal, largely because of the uncertainty and what El Nino is going to do. But for preparedness and for readiness, you need to ignore the seasonal forecast because in any year, just like last year, you can have a really bad season where you live and in our country overall – when the season is forecast to be average or below average. And the seasonal forecast last year had some serious inaccuracies. But I still fully support the pursuit of the science. It's all about how we talk about it and how it is messaged. I think last year, uh, overall, people got a little bit of the wrong message early in the season, and th- and we're, we're surprised by how uh, busy and bad it got. Yeah. Uh, but again, it only takes one, and last year it took two uh, to drive that message home. So I'm, as always, this time of year, concerned about whether or not people are getting ready ahead of time because there are some really tangible, important reasons to get ready ahead of time. 30-day waiting period on flood insurance, long lines for supplies if you wait till the hurricane warning is up. I mean, you've really got to get ready now because – who knows who's going to have the bad year this year, regardless of the seasonal forecast. Yeah,
0: and, and, and Rebecca, you, you're you a meteorologist and an emergency manager and, and think about these things from a FEMA perspective. Let me get your take on sort of uh, the question I asked Dr. Nabb and then sort of from your perspective.
1: I absolutely echo uh, what Dr. Nabb said 100%. Um, ask anyone who survived Florence or Harvey or um, Michael or any of the previous storms we've had if they remember what the seasonal forecast was. And it doesn't matter. And if anything, I worry a little bit more about hurricane fatigue this year. And a, a
0: tell, tell tell the listeners what you mean by that.
1: Yeah. So so hurricane fatigue. We've heard it uh, already started to be used because of the severe weather, and the tornadoes, and the flooding that we've had. But um, you know, with these past few years, um, people have. They, they may either think they know what's going to happen or they're tired of hearing the same message and it's a complacency that, um, you know, are we really getting the message through everything that's happened? And and so we worry about that a little bit. And, and folks who went through Hurricane Florence and had flooding may think they survived a major hurricane when it wasn't. Yeah, that, that
2: fatigue so, takes many forms, doesn't it? Absolutely. You're tired because you were hit recently and you're, you're dealing with recovery and preparation at the same time, or you're tired of dealing with hurricanes and you're tired of preparing every year and nothing happens. But what if it happens to you this year? Absolutely. Because it hasn't happened to you in a long time so we got people with all kinds of different experience levels both recently and long term we
1: have people who are still recovering from hurricane matthew when they were hit by florence and so how do you cut through everything they've experienced to make sure they're prepared again this year so a message like we have with the seasonal forecast where it's not clear will it be average or not how do you really um inspire everyone to say, okay, let's look at what we've seen the past few years and, and, and how do we get ready? And, and when we need to focus on water, that's even harder to get through to people that flooding is what's killing folks after the storm and rainfall and river flooding is is the greatest danger. Yeah, it's just a, really hard to get people do, motivated. Got to get the attention of
0: inland absolutely. folks. Absolutely. Do, you, do either of you think that because of what we've seen in recent years with Harvey and Florence, that the water threat... And I know Dr. Nab, you and I talked in a previous Weather Geeks podcast about the whole Saffir Simpson messaging and what we saw with Florence and that you know, once it was sort of downgraded in category, some people let their guard down, but we knew that with both of those storms, Harvey and Florence, it was gonna be a rain event that was gonna be the issue. Do you think that people are more aware of that or is this still a messaging struggle?
1: No, I don't think people are more aware of that because as we're seeing right now with the flooding, people don't understand and meteorologists don't make it easy for people to understand what we okay. mean when we say flooding.
0: Okay, Well, let's stay there. You say meteorologists. So we're coming down the, uh, the pathway of a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying part of the onus is on us?
1: Absolutely. a Meteorologists, we're fantastic at forecasting the amount of rainfall, 20 inches of rain. But we are very... I guess, new to the art of, of demonstrating to someone, what does that mean for me? Does that mean my basement's going to flood or does that mean I need to go up to the attic? Does that mean I'll be dry if I live in an inland area like Raleigh or Charlotte? Or, you know, if I can't see the coast, does that mean me? And, and how, you know, I guess it's just water and the the force of it and right. the damage from it. Um, there's so many aspects that we are still really new to, I think, understanding and having that conversation with people about what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, I fully agree with that, especially when it comes to the inland flood threat. I mean, we still have some work to do, I'm convinced, on storm surge. And I still worry that there still could be large loss of life in a single day due to storm surge if you have rapid intensification or a low evacuation compliance rate. Mm-hmm. But... We have made a lot of progress on storm surge in recent years, uh, on the education of it. Um, We're issuing new warnings and, and the, now, and the, right? And the Weather Service Storm Surge Watch and Warning, the Hurricane Center's potential storm surge flooding map. I mean, there's still work to do there, but there's so much more work to do on the inland flood threat, not just with the collections of warnings and products that I think need to be enhanced for the inland threat, but the technology isn't even as far along. I mean, we, we don't have the inland Inundation mapping and modeling capabilities that we do for storms like Rebecca says, it's one thing to count how many raindrops fall. I mean, we, we, as meteorologists, we do tend to be a little obsessed with how many inches of rain, right, or how many but,
0: bathtubs it fills up. In yeah,
2: but <laughs> does that mean I could get flooding into my house? Right. So what does that mean, location specific, hazard specific for people uh, near the coast and inland? And even if we solve all of that, I'm still convinced <laughs> that we as humans in general. We just are not as afraid of water or as interested in water as we are afraid of wind and interested well, in wind.
0: Well, Rick, I was just – i literally before we came in to, to tape this podcast, I just tweeted something because I saw a farmer – out in Arkansas, talking about his flooded farm from the recent storms out in the Midwest and Great Plains. And I was making the point that there's been a lot of headlines, rightfully so, about the tornadoes. But let's not forget the damage in, from the flooding, because I think flooding does not raise the same awareness. It doesn't evoke the same telegenic coverage. And, and, and
2: that's And that's a shame, because you look at the statistics just over the last decade, flooding – is taking more lives than any other weather-related hazard. We're losing, on average, about 100 people a year in this country due to flooding. More than half of them in their cars. And this year, we're not having a good year. I mean, as of this date, and and I fear, I hope not, but I fear the number will go up by the time some people listen to this. But uh, this year, we've lost way more than the average number of people in flooding. And the rate of the number of people dying in their cars in flooding is higher than historical Uh, numbers would show. So we're still not, as a society, uh, taking water as seriously or not realizing just how dangerous it is. Uh, in light of all the wind-related hazards that we're so much more aware of, it seems.
0: We are talking with Dr. Rick Nabb, who is the Weather Channel's hurricane expert and former director of the National Hurricane Center, and Rebecca Moulton, the natural hazards planning and disaster response meteorologist for FEMA. Now, I want to take this opportunity because I think a lot of people know who Dr. Nabb is, and I'll have you kind of set your sort of background in a second. But Rebecca, tell us a little bit about... FEMA, how you? How long you've been at FEMA, and exactly what your responsibilities are there?
1: Well, my responsibilities seem to be changing depending on what the weather is for the day. Um, I've been with FEMA now for twelve, thirteen years. Uh, my memory gets foggy because of all the events we've had. Uh, And I am a meteorologist, as you say, and I I started really to help the agency in the southeast, the eight southern states that we have from Mississippi up to North Carolina and then up to Kentucky, uh, look at the hurricane hazards and support our states with creating good evacuation zones and understanding the hazard and getting that information out. And it really expanded from there to all different hazards. And my role in communicate, communication is during an event, I, I collaborate with the National Hurricane Center to communicate this information to emergency managers. So uh, primarily with the state, but also with FEMA and all the federal partners. Uh, The DOT is a huge partner of ours and obviously weather and transportation is a really big deal. So I've gotten a lot more involved in that. So my role has really grown and expanded and and now um, includes all of the weather hazards and the planning and and all of the phases of emergency management. Um, Everyone thinks of it primarily in response operations, but I'm not traditionally forecasting like the weather service forecasters would or um, a meteorologist here where they're looking at details in the forecast. I am much more high level. What does this mean overall? What's the impact? What's the so what? Now what? And and how do we uh, as an agency prepare to support our states, many of whom are very well positioned to support their local communities? And that's that's really a 365 uh, effort.
2: Now, I have worked with Rebecca for many years. We've crossed paths uh, many, many times and primarily through uh, the hurricane liaison team uh, at the National Hurricane Center when she would be deployed down there uh, when I was a forecaster and later when I was a director. And and I, I hope people realize how important that function is to have FEMA inside the Hurricane Center with a permanent presence that is augmented by people like Rebecca right. when their particular region, as uh, region four so often is, uh, is affected. And you know, Rebecca uh, helped me tremendously. Uh, when I was the director of the Hurricane Center, there was one particular hurricane situation where the we, were, we she was getting concerned that uh, there were certain communities uh, that needed to be focused on to ensure they got the message uh, and uh, evacuated in a timely manner. And she, she was my eyes and ears to that situation, and she uh, helped us. Uh, in the Hurricane Center and in the weather service connect with the state and local emergency managers. We all got on the phone and made sure we were all on the same page. And that is the kind of uh, action that is life-saving. And the partnership between FEMA, and the National Weather Service uh, is, is very, very strong. But the Hurricane Liaison Team at the Hurricane Center is is really a crown jewel of that. And uh, it facilitates a lot of really important conversations. You know, you talk about all the communication strategies we have, all the products we have. Human-to-human conversation is really the core of what the weather service calls, rightly so, decision support services, when you're trying to make sure evacuation decision makers have all the right information in their hands. uh, All of us talking together, human to human, is what really makes that process work. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free?
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with two hurricane experts, and they come at this from different perspectives. And I, this is Weather Geeks. I want to geek out now. I want to kind of circle back to 2018. I mean, you, you all know what happened in 2018 with the various storms, Michael, which was recently upgraded to a Category 5, uh, and Dr. Nab, a little later, I want to get your thoughts on why that happened and the process what were and I'll start with you there what why why did why was there a reanalysis why did we go back why did we go back and upgrade these storms but I I want to get your thoughts on that and then I'll get both of your thoughts on what surprised you about 2018
2: well when I was a, a hurricane specialist at the hurricane center uh, I I did that task of reevaluating uh storms uh, that the Hurricane Center had handled operationally. In fact, every depression storm or hurricane that the National Hurricane Center handles operationally, they do a post-event analysis for and write a full report on the uh, the, the whole meteorological history, the forecast accuracy, the casualties, uh, everything about it. And... Uh, you know, I, I had to do that for storms like Katrina, which was an extensive, high-profile uh, post-event analysis and a change in the category afterward. And uh, the the reason that that is done is because you have so much more information after the fact. And, you know, an intensity estimation in real time is one-sided. You have information. Up to that time. After the fact, you have all the information that comes in after that to provide more context. And sometimes, with the benefit of more time, more data, and uh, more careful analysis, uh, you come to a slightly different conclusion. And that's commonplace. The Michael change, the Katrina change, those are just. Two examples among hundreds of times that the uh, post event uh, intensity analysis has been different. Uh, The change in Michael, uh, people might not realize, is very, very small. It was only five miles an hour. It's just that some five mile an hour changes are more important than others. And it took it from the highest category four number that you can have to the lowest category five number. But the messaging is the same, right? yeah, Yeah. And it doesn't change the overall outcome it it but it's an attention getting change and it shows you that a high end 4 okay. <laughs> is just as bad as a uh, as a borderline 5 and if you read the description in the report it talks about how uncertain they still are because we still don't fully sample the winds in a hurricane. And we rate hurricanes differently than tornadoes. We don't rate hurricanes by the damage. Okay? Nobody knew what the strength of Michael was based on looking at the damage. Right. And a lot of that had to do with storm surge, too. Right. It wasn't just the winds. Uh, it's done by all available wind observations. Um, but it does put Michael in a very unique and rare company of a landfalling Category 5 in the United States, um, how many? How many we've? we've now heard. we've had, yeah. Now we've now we've had Michael, Camille, and the thirty-five hurricane, yeah, I, and I, Andrew. I thought it was four. so. It's four. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. And um,
1: and Dr. Nabb, I don't know if you saw. Um,
2: how Director Graham, yes.
1: graphic. They all
2: rapidly intensified. Yes, from a storm. all these yeah. all <laughs> these incredible. Category Five
1: storms were just tropical storms. Right. Seventy two hours, three days before. So landfall. we're
0: talking about, uh, in meteorological parlance, something called rapid intensification or RI, and we've seen that with several of the storms in the last couple of years uh, in
2: both in the Atlantic Basin as well. Yeah, so and, and Rebecca, that. Preve- that presents some very serious real-time Absolutely. emergency management evacuation decision kind of situations. Because if you are currently dealing with a tropical storm, I mean, if you and I were at, in the hurricane liaison team at the Hurricane Center and we're on the phone with the emergency managers we're saying, this is currently a tropical storm and the exact forecast takes it to CAT 2 or 3. How do we deal with the rapid well, intensification possibility? Well, That's I'll, hard. And I, right?
0: I want to come to Rebecca on this because, you know, one of the things I ask is what was surprising. I think for many of us, what was surprising, although we were watching it, is Michael. It really mm-hmm. did rapidly intensify. And as we all three know, the track forecasting is has, has progressed a bit better than the intensity forecast. But, you know, both of you know, but Rebecca, you know that there are people that say, well, I've got this Category 3 threshold. I'm not doing anything unless it's a Category 3 or higher. I'm talking about people that live in these areas. Right. But then you have a storm that rapidly intensifies to Cat 5, essentially. How do we message that? How do you as a person at FEMA or just as a colleague, how do you think about messaging that type of when you know that there are people that say they're not going to leave unless it's Cat 4 or so forth? How do we kind of convey that impacts are more important than the number?
1: I wish I had the million dollar answer know, to I that. Um, but in in my world, that really translates to not just the hazards, but evacuation time and the amount of time because people will respond to major hurricanes, cat three and above, and are more likely to evacuate your clearance time. The amount of time it can take for a community to leave um, can jump in some areas of the country significantly from an entire day of daylight to all of a sudden you're behind the power curve and you should have evacuated yesterday. So those are the situations we try to prevent. So we work with emergency managers to look at scenarios. So if the forecast is for Cat 2, okay, what is that timing for Cat 3? How does that change? And and how do we incorporate that in the uncertainty decisions so that we aren't trying to get people... Off the road when we're in the middle of the rainfall and storm surges coming up over evacuation routes, and and you know sometimes those hazards can come before quite a bit before uh, landfall. Right. So we, we really have to message that um, carefully. And a lot of that is done in the, the off season and the preparedness and the education and the outreach we do with emergency managers.
0: Well, and, I, and that's one of the reasons I was so, um, and I, I, I don't expect your want you to comment on this, but that was one of the reasons I was so concerned about the sequestration. I'm sorry, the shutdown uh, that we saw, because I know a lot of things happen in the off season at the Hurricane Center and, and many of those people were idled. And so it's important for the listeners to understand that uh, there was no, Near hurricane season, that that really had an impact on some of the things that that you just heard. Um, other things that surprised either either of you about what we saw in twenty eighteen in terms of the hurricane season.
1: I think we'd all be kidding ourselves if we didn't say everything. <laughs> I I've, the the forecasters at the Hurricane Center are world class best forecasters, and I think collectively jaws just dropped when we saw a storm like Michael. I know my stomach dropped when I saw Florence become what I I knew would be a Harvey-like situation. I wasn't expecting that either. Mm -hmm. That amount of rainfall, we keep increasing our rainfall scales and adding colors. And I just really did not expect to continue to see these types of impacts from storms.
2: I can't imagine that there's any meteorologist anywhere who isn't a little surprised that Michael got as strong as it did. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I mean we were we were anticipating some strengthening. And you know when it was forming in the western Caribbean, there was a fair amount of wind shear. It wasn't the ideal environment exactly. for significant strengthening and uh every time we went through another forecast cycle and we all saw reasons for uh, upping the intensity forecast, we had to keep saying, well, but plan for another category higher than that. And then they would get up to that on the next advisory, and then, oh, plan for another category. We were, we were trying to catch up with it. That's the nature of the beast. The, 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 the rapid intensification puzzle is so difficult. And intensity forecasting still remains a significant puzzle, because look at how high the intensity forecast was for Florence compared to what it made landfall at. But with Florence, we... As meteorologists, we all knew that Florence was going to slow down. That's why we were sounding the alarm on the inland flood threat. Right. The, the track forecasts continue to be stellar in many ways, and the intensity forecasts continue to be a, a big challenge. There are small changes, small improvements happening in intensity forecasting overall, but we have not cracked that nut on rapid intensification.
0: Well, well and I wanted to sort of uh, interject. What I was surprised, I was actually surprised, though I shouldn't have been, because of the strength and the movement, the speed of forward speed of, of Michael, that we saw 100-plus-mile-per-hour winds into Georgia mm-hmm. uh, and that devastated many of the agricultural crops. But I want to stay with the intensity. I think, you know, and either one of you, feel free to chime in on this. Why is it that the hurricane track forecast and the models do are so much better than the intensity forecast? I mean, can you just give the listeners sort of a 101 of why
2: we've been able to make better strides with the track forecast? Track forecasting has to do with the large-scale pattern. Uh, it's much more possible and feasible to observe and model and forecast what the larger-scale patterns are going to do. And that you know, the hurricane doesn't have its own steering wheel. Right. Okay. It's steered by the larger weather systems around it. Uh, intensity forecasting has a lot to do with that surrounding environment, because wind shear and the and ocean temperatures and, and the, the humidity levels in the atmosphere can affect uh, intensification. But intensification has a lot to do with what's going on in the inner core, which is far more difficult we to observe and We're to exactly. model and to forecast. And that, what is going on in the inner core, is what made Florence and michael in opposite senses difficult to to uh, get a hold on in terms of forecasting intensity and most major hurricanes go through a rapid intensification phase but we just can't seem to get a handle on when the inner core is going to tighten up like that and you know what is going to be the exact timing and magnitude of rapid intensification and and you know michael showed why this is such a high priority forecast improvement need and has been for years, and that is, you know it it was, I recall, hard to convince everybody in the Panhandle to evacuate. and the night before we're talking to the Florida governor on television, and we're I, I'm on there with him. We're both pleading together with people to get out. <laughs> but what, what only seemed to really motivate people to go uh, uh, was the fact that it kept getting stronger and kept getting stronger, and you know, a lot of people got out because they could in a lesser populated area, Uh, people got out the night before uh, because it had gotten to to Cat 3 and then to Cat 4. So uh, if, if we could forecast rapid intensification... Uh, it would save a lot more lives.
1: And I think we really owe it to uh, thank the hurricane hunters for their amazing uh, data collected continuously as Michael made landfall, really save lives.
2: And Rebecca, I'm interested in your take on this, though. You know, as much as we uh, are are wanting intensity forecasts to be better and as much of a problem as rapid intensification is, we still had enough... Of an idea of the strengthening, and there was there were still the useful warnings and products for storm surge, and the conversations with the emergency managers about the possibility of it getting stronger, and those storm surge products account for possibilities of a stronger right. system. The system still worked, did it not? We, we still called evacuations in enough time for people to get out.
1: Yes. And that gets into the complicated process of you can have the best forecasts in the world and there will still be a number of other factors at play. And um, that's what makes my job incredibly difficult, uh, kind of an art of communication plus planning, working with our partners. As you mentioned, um, you know, the face-to-face communication, I interestingly went back and looked since we've started using cell phones, which Arthur, I think was Hurricane Arthur was the first storm that I can really tell that we started texting each other all the time and using social media. Mm -hmm. And you would think that that would really improve communication, but our number of conference calls where we're talking to each other has gone up, not down. So are we really pushing around more information and improving the outcome and helping people evacuate? or Are we just pushing out more information? We have a lot more work to do on that front. Um, Get to understand, I think, some of the demographics of that area. It was a different communication message that we needed. And a storm surge warning on the Atlantic coast for three feet means something different than a storm surge warning on the Gulf Coast to people. When they hear warning, they're thinking Katrina water. And that's not necessarily what the forecast was. So there's a lot of communication challenges, and we really work to help folks understand those localized challenges. And the local emergency managers are the ones who really, really deserve the lion's share of the credit for um, working Absolutely. with our community. Those, those
2: folks are heroes. Those women and men who call those evacuations and— uh, which is not an easy decision to make, and and then of course the responders uh, and, and and all the planning that goes on for years to put them in that position, and you know you know FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers and NOAA Weather Service mainly Hurricane Center are are part of something called the National Hurricane Program that puts all these tools together to empower and uh, enable and. Uh, uh, equip local emergency managers with yes. with some of the tools that they use for that evacuation decision making, and and again, the hurricane liaison team, the hurricane center, you know, facilitates that at at a, at a broad level. And sometimes we get local, even from the hurricane center. So there's there's so much being done uh, that I hope the public realizes that, and that you know, my dream on the whole evacuation thing was that it, is that every person in the public would boil it down to this. I know my evacuation zone. I know where I'm going to go and how I'm going to get there if told to evacuate. And when I'm told to go, I'm going to go. You
1: and know, I have flood insurance. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, and, and, yeah, right. yeah, that, I
2: was just talking about the evacuation question. But yes, the with, flood, with insurance flood insurance issue, too. Yeah, that's, that's another pillar of the Hurricane Strong initiative, right? Uh, but the public should have tremendous confidence when their local officials issue an evacuation instruction and should just comply, and uh, it's much easier to comply if you've planned ahead, and that's why we stress the preparedness ahead of time, because you wait till the last minute, uh, you're not going to know where to go or what to do if you haven't thought of ahead of time.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast talking with Rebecca Moulton from FEMA and Dr. Rick Nabb from right here at the Weather Channel and formerly the director of the National Hurricane Center. I want to pivot the discussion a little bit now. Hmm. I mean, you've, you've been touching on it throughout the discussion, but communication. We're in an era where our models are getting better. We have GOES, satellites. We've got really good radar systems, but the communication, the social media. Now, uh, this is something that I was talking with Eric Blake about before we came in to do the taping, the social media era and hurricanes. Rebecca, what are your thoughts on social media communication and warning and messaging hurricanes?
1: You know, I uh, so I have also a background in communication, which I thought was um, going to actually be a detriment when I got my graduate degree in meteorology and ended up serving me perfectly in my in my world that I'm in now and it really boils down to i think meteorologists have to realize that they may be the scientific experts but we are not experts in public communication and i think it would be really helpful for folks to sometimes consider that and flip their point of view around because so often We want the public to trust us, but we don't trust them. Hmm. And they're telling us by what they do or don't do or, you know, what information they consume, what they think about the weather. And weather is such a personal part of everyone's lives. And we've seen a lot of the social science in our community come out to tell us things. I'm thinking particularly about tornadoes, but also hurricanes, how people personalize and need to personalize the weather information in order to make the right decisions. And as meteorologists, we may have an idea of what we think is the right decision, but I see this a lot sometimes when meteorologists are sort of second-guessing emergency managers. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? You may not be an expert in that field. And the more I think we can flip around our perspective and try to understand some of these, the more we will actually start to take some better steps forward. Social media, sometimes it can... Be people talking at each other, and I know there's a lot of meteorologists that talk about this that we all follow each other. Are we really reaching the public? And yeah. how do we connect with them? Um, but we all know people who aren't meteorologists, and it's so fascinating that they don't think like us and talk to people, uh, find out what they what they understand and what they don't, and then believe them, trust them that they're not stupid because they don't understand. Maybe as in the example of floods, we have. 20 different flood products and it's possible people still don't know what flood means. Right. So maybe we, are, yes, we're experts at the rainfall, we can tell you all the hydrology but maybe they're telling us a, a real need there. And we do have, in, in my program, as is, is Dr. Nav mentioned, the National Hurricane Program, there is a lot of science and art baked into the evacuation planning, the hazard, but also the behavioral studies. Um, we look and in, in try to understand why people did or didn't evacuate, how long it takes them to get there, what their needs are, if they get to a shelter, all of those things. Emergency managers are such great sources of information when it comes to the community.
2: You know, social media, like any other communications tool, like any other technology, has its strengths and weaknesses, has uh, things that we use it well for and things we don't use it so well for. But one thing that I have found it to be extremely useful for is to listen Mm -hmm. and to see what people in the public are thinking, saying. And it really gives me situational awareness on what we might be saying in a real-time event that... Uh, isn't really getting through or what misconceptions are out there. And not just during a real-time event, but in in, in other times of year, including the lead-up to hurricane season. You know, I think one mistake uh, I've made as a meteorologist over the year is assuming that because I've said it, for the past 10 lead ups to hurricane season that everybody's heard it and has gotten it. And I gotta come up with something new to say, but we still have to get back to basics because not everybody is a hurricane uh, veteran. Some people are living in communities the first time in their life, they're hurricane prone. And we still have to uh, not make assumptions that everybody has heard all of it before um, or, 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 or understands it.
1: It's really right? hard to take off that hat sometimes. I'm yeah. guilty right. of that too. Yeah, we,
2: we, all, we all are because we kind of get locked into sort of
0: our you know, personal perspective. My wife tells me this all the time. She's like, yeah, you're mm-hmm. very weather aware, but most people aren't. Right. <laughs> so, but
1: at the same time, everyone has a phone in their pocket and a right. weather app on there. So mm-hmm. they th- Think they know, and we have an entire field in emergency management in FEMA. We have a chair dedicated in our response center just to social media listening, and we have crowdsourcing, and, and mm. so that's such an important part. I think of what we do, not to just you know assume that we know
2: everything. And, and we as meteorologists aren't the only ones who are, are dealing with this challenge. I mean, the flood insurance issue, for example, is something that we as meteorologists, I think, are getting more involved in the discussion. And, and that's a good thing. We, we I don't think it's a good thing for meteorologists to just stick to the meteorology. Absolutely we right. need to at least be conversant yes. and be aware of the issues that affect how people's outcomes are as a result of extreme weather. And flood insurance is a big part of it. And In getting involved in that conversation with experts in insurance and with people in the public, that's another topic where we feel like we've said the same things and the right things over and over and people understand it, but a lot of people still don't understand what their homeowners or renters insurance covers or doesn't cover and why they need flood insurance in the first place. And there's so many misconceptions. They don't think they're vulnerable to flood or they don't know if they're vulnerable to flood. Uh, the 100 year, 500 year stuff has thrown people for a loop. The uh, assumption that it's too expensive on and on and on. And so that's why you know it's uh, it's important to, again, not assume that everybody's heard it and keep hammering home the basics, but also understand what is it about how we're communicating it that is not being understood. And how can we change how we communicate?
0: And, I, and I, as you were talking, I was thinking about something General Russell Honoré told me one time. He's like, if you can see water from your house or th- or if it's close by, you probably are going to have a flood situation at some
2: point. Yeah, and on storm surge, we say just because you can't see the ocean doesn't mean the ocean can't, can't come see, see come, you. Come right? see you. Yeah.
0: I've heard that one as well. I want to now ask both of you. Now, Dr. Nabb, you're, Uh, in front of millions uh, conveying information about these storms on the Weather Channel. I mean, and you're quite good at it. Rebecca, you're focused more on emergency managers, the public, from a different perspective. As you think about 2018 and as we move forward to 2019, how you message storms like a Harvey, I'm sorry, a Michael or a Florence? From a TV perspective or from emergency management perspective, do you change your, your messaging approach uh, for different types of storms, or is it pretty much always the same, first from the TV perspective and, from perspective and then the emergency management perspective?
2: Oh, I think we have to handle every event on its own merits and uh, not treat every storm the same. With this, you know, you use the right tools for the right situation, and what you say, and what products you emphasize, and how you explain the threats and the hazards, and what people ought to do, uh, and when it's headed toward a different part of the country with different populations and diff- different uh, experience levels or how recently they've been hit, you've got to handle every situation very differently, and uh, it's not just because of the meteorology of it. I mean, sometimes. Wind is more of a concern. Uh, most of the time, water is more of a concern. And even with uh,
0: Florence, I noticed there were some significant tornadoes, too. There was like, yes. yeah, a tornado-active storm.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so there are a number of things that we, I think we do well as a meteorological meteorological community uh, in just about every hurricane situation that we need to keep doing. But there are things that we need to do differently uh, if – If we had Florence all over again, I I, I hope there's some way that we could, not just with products and warnings, but uh, with how we communicate it. And we probably need some social science input on how to do this better. But how do we truly sound the alarm for a potentially catastrophic widespread inland flood? I mean, I don't think we're saying that uh, or conveying that in the right terms. Flash flood watch certainly doesn't do it. Um, Even the weather prediction center's excessive rainfall outlook that goes high risk, that probably isn't even quite enough in the scope of an event like a Florence, like a Harvey. Uh, Meteorologically, we saw it coming. Mm -hmm. We knew it was going to slow down. We knew how much rain was going to fall in inches and in feet. And we were starting to talk about potentially catastrophic flooding. But I don't think... The public then transformed that into their mind, a picture of most of the state of North Carolina going underwater. Right. I mean, we saw that. I don't think the public saw that. How do we flip that script and convey massive inland flooding, but in other cases still convey the risk that – there are a few communities that could flood, even if it's not going to be widespread. So we've got to get that picture of my community going to flood into people's heads somehow. Yeah, Rebecca, what are your thoughts?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head with picture. I, I combed through... Um, newspaper reports online and and any interview i could get with people after florence and i really want to know what the people were doing in their cars when they died uh, and why they were there that's something that is an unanswered question that i would i would love to dig deeper and that problem is still
2: happening here in 2019 absolutely absolutely most people are dying this year in their cars and and when when they're interviewed afterward they say things like, "Well, if I could have seen it, it was night. Mm-hmm. It was so If I could have seen the water, I never would have driven into it, or I thought it was a puddle." I mean, we have so many challenges there, Rebecca. I know. We do,
1: and and I heard, one thing I read a lot was people saying, "Well, it didn't flood here during Matthew, or we had water during Matthew, and unfortunately, there are some people who have had to evacuate." during Matthew and then had to do it again for Florence and they're using that mental picture in their mind from what they're familiar with
0: yeah absolutely the mental models uh, and I know know, Castle Williams out there shout out to Castle and uh, uh, at the University of Georgia I know he's thought about some of these very issues as well I, s- I found that in talking to people in Harvey. They were like, well, mm-hmm. we get floods all of the time here in Houston. So I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. But by its very nature, it was an anomaly event. So it's mm-hmm. an event you probably haven't experienced before. Right. And so right. people are using their experiences with another type of flood. So,
1: and, you know, you mentioned things you haven't experienced before. That, I think, this in the offseason, it's funny because I'm thinking about football. And I, I realized that our past two FEMA administrators have both come from the South. And so they have been huge football fans. And so it's SEC country, it's too. Exactly. I and so, well, now Brock may have been AC. I don't know. Oh, okay. Anyway, so we do have a little bit of football culture and actually the new nominee is also from the South. So we do have a little bit of fo- football culture going and, and it reminds me of like, we look back on the season and see how we played and what happened and what worked. And it's almost like watching films on the off season. We have gone back in our exercises. I have done two this year where we have walked through a rapid intensification in less than 72 hours. What are we going to do? What resources will be challenged? What teams, will we need that type of response over and over and over again in our planning? I think there was, after Katrina, I saw a lot of agencies and partners looking at 120-hour timeframes, um, five-day forecasts, and, you know, a nice long timeline where you have storm coming across the Atlantic and you can see it coming. But with Michael, everyone has said to me, you know, it, w- it was just down there in the Caribbean, and then it moved in a little, little bit. We didn't think it was going to really come here. And with Florence, there was the kind of expectation that it would curve out to sea for a minute. So, um, yeah, we've really gone back and looked at and tested. Um, with Florence, you had every swift water response team, I think, in the entire country positioned, ready to jump in and help out because we had that longer timeline. But what do we miss when we don't? Harvey was another example. Um So that's one thing I really see emergency managers looking at is, is what have we learned and how can we adjust?
2: And even with all of the forecasts being 100% accurate, that isn't the case. But if that were to be the case, and even if all of the emergency management instructions were completely timely and perfectly communicated, none of that solves the problem of people driving their cars into floodwaters. Because after you know, at that point, the category issue is long gone. The rains have already fallen, instructions from emergency managers have already been given. And now uh individuals are facing that decision, do I keep driving or do I turn around? And I don't know what the secret sauce is here, but there are still too many people who continue driving and, and sometimes drive around barricades mm-hmm. that officials have put in place. I mean I I know there are uh, a lot of successes to be touted with how the turnaround don't drown messaging. I mean, I don't know how many lives it has saved. It's probably saved more than we realize. But there are still too many lives being lost this way in cars, um, in floodwaters, that sometimes I wonder if we need to, as a nation, put more resources into more easily Closing roads uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and to well, prevent we, we, we people we s- from ever having to make that Well, we decision. see that
0: with snow, uh, with some yeah. of the – I mean, I was just heading down to the coast of Georgia. I mean, I, and, and even when I was in the northeast and mid-Atlantic, I mean, they had these sort of barriers that were closed down. Yeah, and I'm talking
2: about closing roads in ways that are as strong when you prevent people from trying to steal a rental car and you prevent people from trying to drive to where there's a chemical spill or an accident or you're trying to keep people from driving close to a, a stadium at the Super Bowl. I'm talking about do we – is it – is it to the point where we have to and this would obviously take a lot of money for the equipment and the people because the, the officials and law enforcement and emergency managers are doing a stellar job on this uh with the resources they have but do we need more resources to close roads in large numbers in ways that people can't drive around i mean it, you know that would take a lot of money it but would. is it but is that good. what we need to do because now it's not that we're losing a few lives this way we're losing dozens of lives every year yeah. this way and we're losing people in flooding more than any other weather related hazard so that's why i think this deserves serious consideration to put some resources to well, and
1: without the ev- evacuation orders in place without the you know these are areas that may not have been expecting landfall at by any stretch you have a lot of businesses that aren't closed and aren't going to close. Right. So are people driving to work? Because they have to.
0: Yes. I mean, there are these decisions that really people will weigh their sort of individual mm-hmm. value propositions. I got to get my kid from daycare. Exactly. And, so and I, we've that, heard that and, before. And so is the risk, I mean, that, that risk of driving through. So the, there are complicated issues, but I think both of you raise key points here. So get, we've gone well past our, our time, but that's okay. That's the beauty of a podcast. So I'm going to give each of you 30 seconds for your final thoughts, 30 seconds each, start with Rebecca on 2019 hurricane season. What message do you want to get out there?
1: The past few seasons have been devastating. And we've all seen things that we thought were unbelievable. And I'm in the business of catastrophic planning. Um, so I think this season we have to be on our toes like we haven't been before because we just don't know. And we do know now that um, the unthinkable, quote unquote, is absolutely possible.
2: Yeah. Don't just try to hope the problem away. Um, Don't think it can't happen to you. If you just take that approach, it puts you in a position of weakness. Because then you're letting whatever hurricane that does surprise you and come your way dictate your outcome. And that's the whole premise behind this Hurricane Strong initiative. It's making us strong so that whatever comes our way... We can deal with it, but that only happens, I'm convinced, if you plan ahead by finding out your evacuation zone and buying your supplies and updating your insurance and getting flood insurance and strengthening your home and figuring out who you can help. Uh, Because if you wait until the last minute- It's too late. It is too late. That's where we have
0: to end it. Before we do, though, I know both of you are on social media. Where where can people find you on social media, Rebecca?
1: My handle is rcpmwx, which is my initials plus weather that's pretty simple
2: okay and Rick re- I'm primarily on Twitter, Dr. Rick Nabb.
0: Okay, so make sure you follow both of these folks, particularly as we get to June 1st and start the Atlantic hurricane season. And that's where we have to end it. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Marshall. Thank you. It was a really great conversation. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we will see you next time. Or uh, also make sure you're not only listening to the podcast, go out there and follow it on those various podcast outlets like iTunes, Stitcher, and whatnot. See you next time.